0: and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and joining me, I am delighted to announce, is Anthony Tresca.
1: I am delighted, you're delighted, and hello there.
0: This is a podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And
1: we are so... Very, very excited and thankful to have you join us for our episode over 1974's Black Christmas.
0: This is the first of our Black Christmases. Uh, we're just going to work mm-hmm. our way through them all, and I'm terribly excited for that. And I, I must say that I am in part... Um, my desire to do so stems from the fact that one of the very first horror podcast episodes I listened to was from Faculty of Horror, and it was their episode where they were comparing the uh, two Black Christmases together. And I can't remember now if they were comparing the 74 with the 2006... Or with the 2019, um, I just can't remember. But uh, either way, I remember that was when I realized that first I, I really was excited about the idea of podcasting, um, if I could find someone, and then I did, I found Anthony. Uh, but also, it just, <laughs> um, it actually made me really excited to, to watch the films and to watch the films in conversation with one another. So
1: have you, had you seen this uh, original 1974 version?
0: I had not.
1: Had you seen any of the Black Christmases before?
0: Yes, I've seen the 2006 one, which I think okay. might be the worst one of the bunch. That's I really
1: interesting. That's...
0: Yeah, I saw it and then I was like, ugh, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. And so I'm pretty sure that was the reason that I just decided to hold off on any other versions of Black Christmas, which is admittedly unfair because you should never go with with a, like... 19 I uh, not 19 you should never go with like the early 2000 remakes of things as your judge of whether or not something is gonna be good but I'm also not always a big fan of 70s horror um I know that that's a very scandalous statement to make um, and I realize that I've just more or less you know alienated our our listeners from from my anything I have to say but um but I'm just very selective I've noticed and I mean so you know I'm a big fan of Halloween. I'm a little less of a fan of the first Friday the Thirteenth, um, and and so, yeah, I think that was my hesitation on on seeing the original. Uh, but like I said, that Faculty of Horror episode really made me excited because one of the things they mentioned that I know we're going to talk about is that this film is is weirdly um, progressive in and in terms of its not just in terms of some of the, the political statements that are clearly being made, but also in terms of just, uh, if we go back to kind of our labels of horror, right. Um, this, this film is, is doing things that I don't think other films are going to do. Had you seen any of these before?
1: I had seen the 2019, uh, black Christmas that came out and that, yeah, that was about it. I also, uh, Long-time listeners of the podcast who uh, hate me know that I don't like 70s horror, or at least the two that you just brought up. I don't like Halloween. I don't like Friday the 13th. It's just, I don't know. I'm just... Give me my nightmare. I, cu- I couldn't wait. I love the 80s. I love the horror of the 80s. Uh, the 90s, are hit or miss for me. Early 2000s, what a mess. 2010s, yeah, they're pretty good, but... I wasn't particularly excited, I don't think, to watch Black Christmas. (laughs) However, however, I'm happy to report I do like this movie from the 70s. This is a great one. I really like it a lot.
0: It really really is a good film. and, And I would argue that part of the reason is that it is managing to to be a little transgressive um, to to break free of some of the restrictions that are in place in other um, 70s horror and you know i, I don't want to to ascribe too much to this without you know having a lot of uh, evidence to back it up but i think it's it's worth thinking about the fact that this is not a us film yeah right? it's canadian film and and let's face it the canadians <laughs> have have managed to be a little less repressed than us in some really important ways uh -hmm. you know they don't have those puritanical roots uh that are clinging to them that i think lurk in in most slasher films period let alone slasher films of the 70s
1: yeah in one review i i read they attributed this larger like phenomenon that you're talking about about how canadian films about america reveal truths about america that americans aren't willing to admit about themselves so yeah i think it's a common trend that not only you but other film reviewers have also noted this phenomenon that
0: occurs so i thought that because this film manages to clearly be a slasher film and in every way that's important, but also manages to be an outlier in some ways that we would return back as our framework to something that we've looked at before, um, in other discussions of slasher films, but that is definitely worth bringing back to this conversation. And that is, uh, Carol J. Clover's section on gender in the slasher film. So she is called her body himself, gender in the slasher film. And, you know, this is is pretty much the essay that everyone turns to when they're looking for issues of gender and issues of um, how that appears within horror. And she breaks it down really systematically. She says, you know, okay, we're just going to go through like all of the elements of the slasher film and talk about the very specific things that appear that connect to this. And so it's everything from the weapon, which she says is, you know, often incredibly phallic, um, to the victims who are often highly sexualized and therefore have to be punished, to what she calls the terrible place, which we've discussed uh, in an episode before, which um, she describes as being rather uterine in appearance oftentimes because it's like a tunnel that the final girl has to, like, burst through to escape and be alive. Um, And then, of course, the final girl herself, which uh, Clover says is is an intriguing figure in these films because um, that's the figure that male audiences have to identify with if they don't want to identify with the male killer. Um, And so as a result, the the final girl is not always usually virginal, but she is a little bit more androgynous or a little bit more masculine in terms of, um, you know, like this, the, the coded definitions of that, because that way the the male audiences, uh, which in the 70s would probably have been primarily the audiences watching these films, would would be able to identify uh, with with the fact that a character like Laurie, which is an, an androgynous name, right, uh, in Halloween, um, can can be somebody identifiable.
1: Yeah, it's all very Freudian.
0: Oh, absolutely. Which is one of the reasons that that I often struggle with some gender uh, scholarship in, in horror, because a lot of it really does lurk back to to Freud. And, and even when, thank heavens, uh, you know, uh, feminist scholars are saying, okay, let's push against uh, Freud and his creepiness. Um, you know, anything that kind of starts from Freud is probably not going to be my cup of tea. But But what I like about Clover is that if you've seen even two or three slasher films, you know that what she's talking about is a pattern that exists um, throughout much of of U.S. slasher films.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, like Freud himself, not everything that was said is wrong. It just is it's creepy and weird. Some of it's wrong. Yes,
0: yes, <laughs> and 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 I would say though that that while well, some of it is definitely wrong with Freud, Clover really hits the nail on the head, and that she's talking about a very specific. Um, branch of horror, pre-sort of evolution, right? So I think mm-hmm. we've gotten to the place where we have some great horror films that are beginning to to ask us to to burst out of yeah, they're playing um, these tropes, they're playing on mm-hmm. these
1: tropes, so they're they're appropriating these tropes into a more to have a more modern sensibility. Yes. to them. However, I do think it's pretty interesting that Clover starts uh, with the final girl from Halloween and not the true start of the slasher films, which is black Christmas, as you were telling me before the podcast.
0: Yeah. So there is some really interesting scholarship out there uh, where people are saying that, you know, if we're looking for the root of the slasher film, that we really need to look and turn to not Halloween as, as many people cite it to be, but black Christmas. Um, And certainly chronologically speaking, black christmas comes first Mm -hmm. um and certainly um if we go through the checklist of of things that clover has built primarily thinking about halloween onward a lot of it's going to hold really true um to to black christmas talks about is the use of the um eye camera right the islands uh Mm -hmm. so having the killers pov be what the camera shows us and we see that throughout the film black
1: christmas starts with that. yes it's the same it's a very similar shot to the opening shot from halloween it is uh, the only the only difference is the one from halloween obviously had that dumb looking filter over it to do the mask
0: right and and <laughs> and the other differences is, is that halloween really limits us to that just that one moment where we get a lot of that in black christmas there are other things obviously um in Black Christmas, some of the characters who get, quote, uh, punished for their transgressions are are the ones who, uh, slasher films have told us, need to, to die. Uh, you know, the, the mm-hmm. people who drink excessively, um, the people who are highly sexual, um, the people who sort of flaunt um, the standards, conventions of how we're supposed to behave. Um, and certainly we have a final girl uh, in Jess.
1: Jess is a very... Uh ambiguous sounding name exactly Uh, not explicitly gendered although although jess as a character is pretty gendered as the one of the her primary struggle that or not struggle the primary thing in which uh kind of drives her plot along is that she is pregnant and she is going to get an abortion which is a uniquely kind of like gendered issue
0: Yes. And, and I think, so we're going to circle back to that. I, I think the other thing that really makes it hard. So, um, to, to see Jess as a sort of more androgynous, um, or even masculine character is that, um, Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween, uh, has, you know, a little bit more of an angular face. Uh, her hair was relatively short. Um, she, you know, was dressed in a way that, that was, wasn't unfeminine but it wasn't feminine either but we mm-hmm. need to keep in mind that that our main leading actress in um black christmas the 74 version is olivia hussey whose 1968 role was juliet in like one of the most famous versions of romeo and juliet right, right. So, so this is who um like the chances that audiences in 74 had not seen Romeo and Juliet or had at least not been familiar with it are really low, right? Um, you know, that was even the standard version of the film that I watched in, in elementary school, despite the fact there were other versions, right? That's kind of the, the standard. So you're absolutely correct that from the casting and her appearance, her hair is much longer. She's much more delicate in form. Um, when you take that and you couple it with one of the central components of the story, and that is the fact that that she is pregnant, right? That um mm-hmm. that really adds an interesting layer. And it adds a really interesting layer that, that she's seeking an abortion.
1: Yeah. I mean that is a it it almost it's very it's very very interesting because these issues that they were so relevant in nineteen seventy four. It feels like this may as well have been a movie with the plot line that is really relevant today because this is still a central issue which I mean I guess just shows how little progress has come since then which is a little sad but also it makes it really relevant to even today on a rewatch
0: Yes, it makes it very relevant I think in terms of the dynamics with her boyfriend mm-hmm. um, and this idea of you know there there's that <laughs> so there were a couple of scenes that just felt so much like you said like they could have come out of a script in, in 2020, and we wouldn't have blinked twice. And that was, um, the boyfriend's insistence that they were going to get married, uh, so that Mm. she could have the baby. And then, um, also his insistence, well, fine, but I still want the baby, right? Like I, you know, and, and so a lot of the discussions about like, um, one's body. And when you think about the fact, and this to me is just sort of mind boggling, that this film is coming out in 74, uh, Roe v. Wade is 73. Um, So we are talking that this film at the time would have been uh, incredibly scandalous uh, in the U.S. especially. Um, So there's this really interesting way in which um, Jess is not, she's not androgynous, but she's also not entirely demonstrating um, what we have defined as traditional feminine qualities. Right. One of the one of the thing plot devices that just drives me bonkers um, is is the like when when a female character who has said all along that they don't want children um, at the end of a series. Yes. I'm speaking to you, Big Bang Theory, um, has a character be like, but no, I actually do want children after all. I just never knew it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and we see that actually a lot in, in very conservative horror. Right. Where at the end the the sort of progressive female ends up having a family that she now has to take care of because you know there are children that are unattached or whatever. Um so anyway, what what this film is doing is it's it's making a character who is simultaneously very feminine but also and this is not me saying it, this is traditional standards of like anti-feminine anti-feminine, right? Not anti-feminist, anti-feminine. Um, And so in this way, to go back to Clover, we are still having um, a final girl that is really complicated. Just not complicated in the way that I think she would say the slasher film traditionally depicts things. And to me, this is what I think it makes, in part, this film just so good is because we have this character that I don't think we get otherwise.
1: Otherwise...
0: In Are you saying American,
1: without, like... Oh, I, you're saying in an American setting. In an American, like
0: yeah, in an American horror of that time, maybe in an American horror of today, if certainly if it's a slasher film. Um, I just think this film is, is rather radical uh, in its depiction of Jess and how casually um, it, it presents Jess.
1: Yeah, it's not... It's so rational that, like, the, the position... That they paint that they paint Peter the, the boyfriend in is so like tyrannical and oppressive and just like out of control that it's not even an option it's just like well yeah obviously gonna side with Jess um, because Jess is the only level headed one here who's thinking clearly at all which is yeah it's you're right it's kind of, that kind of depiction probably would not happen today because it doesn't have I don't it may not have like mass market appeal and so they shy away from that,
0: yeah.
1: Hence, why like abortion is just a touchy subject in film in American films in
0: general, right? And not only is he tyrannical, um, I'm, I'm glad. Thank you for reminding me of his name. So his name is Peter, right? So there's a biblical connotation right there. But he plays church music, right? He is, he is, he is the the representative of the church in the in this way, and so yeah. he's he's the patriarchy. Um, he's, he's the system, he's religion, right? And, and she kills him, right? Like, you know, she kills the patriarchy at the end. And that's, that's that's shocking.
1: powerful. And I think we should, we'll circle back to another reason why Jess can't be a real, a, a true final girl, I don't think, is because in, like, in a lot of these slasher films, it's almost like, in spite of their femininity... these slasher girls are able to overcome everything but in black christmas it really just really is able to overcome peter the patriarchy the oppression that is faced on her because of her femininity
0: can you elaborate on that I, i think we yeah
1: i mean i think it's because it's a very particular position that in which she's been uh placed into in which she's like being she's probably i mean people women are taught every day to be in fear uh, when there are uh, people who are going to do these perpetrators who are going to come harass them in this manner and Jess is living that worst nightmare and so but in a way it's almost as if that upbringing and the socialization is puts her in a perfect position to understand and accurately assess the situation and she understands that why the stakes are so high and so she knows what to do, and she's able to successfully successfully thwart it of it being peter the patriarch i'm it's I'm using it in a broader sense because of her femininity
0: yeah so i i would agree um i would i would agree largely with what you're saying. I would say that there's a small wrench thrown into into this idea that she does it successfully when we keep in mind that you know technically peter. Wasn't the killer. Um, yeah, Peter may not
1: have been the killer, but Peter was the villain. That's true. So I, I guess it doesn't necessarily. I think that is something that is deeply interesting about this film is that the murderer is not positioned as the central villain. Um, because I think Peter is definitely the central villain of this film, uh, while the person who is perpetrating all of these murders is quite honestly more of a plot device than anything else
0: yeah no i agree and i, I do want to circle back to the to the murder in a little bit but if i'm gonna go real real far in my uh gender analysis uh here go which for I, it yeah um so if we're gonna return back to the idea that that clover raised about the terrible place being a a metaphor for at the very least the, like, uterine element of the female body, if not more. Um, to, to speak on what you said about Peter being the villain, he literally breaks into Jess's place, mm-hmm. right? Um, he, he, you know, he smashes that window and he's like, hey, Jess, can I come in? And then, like, he, you know, and, and I don't think, I don't think it takes much to read that as a metaphor for, not that he raped her or anything like that, but that um, mm-hmm. he... And patriarchy and um, the larger hegemonic, but particularly male-centric society, Mm -hmm. have long felt that they have the ability to control and to manipulate a woman's body if they think that it's in the best interest of them and or the woman, right? And so he yeah. breaks in to, quote, save her. He breaks in to, to, like, see what's wrong with her. If he's not, you know, a murderer um, or wasn't going to murder her, which I, I think we have to assume that he he wasn't, even if he was going to be controlling, he still is is terrorizing her. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, the fact that we have this this violation of her border and her boundary. Um, and in the end, he's the one that has to pay the price for it. Um, so there's a joke uh, you know, on the internet that says something along the lines of, um, you know, that every, every male at the age of 16 should have a vasectomy, and then when they're ready to have children, it can be reversed. And then at the end it says, oh, you don't like the idea of someone making decisions about what your body can do, uh, you know. And and it's you know. And of course, the joke is is that we often restrict what women's bodies can do. And I think this film is is explicitly exploring all of that in a way that is honestly just shocking um, for mm-hmm. a film of of the seventies, for a horror film, for a slasher film, um, and that makes it a film that that I don't think even as it can can be the the first film of of the slasher films. I'm not sure we can say that it is the first slasher film, because it's an, too much of an outlier, right? Like it's or... only
1: if only if you accept that Clover's definition is universal, and because. I think then... I don't think that it it necessarily needs to be. I think that Clover's definition, we can... I think you talked about this earlier. It's referring to a very specific set of slasher films. And so I don't even think it would be right to use Clover's definition to talk broadly about slasher films or talk about any slasher film or slasher-like films that came before Halloween. Or um, I'm trying to think of where the cutoff point is.
0: Yeah, so I would say that her... Her description works for films Halloween to probably the end of the nineties.
1: Yeah, I was thinking. I was thinking the nineties as well.
0: I think maybe Scream, maybe Scream broke the the mold because it it sort of became the like because in its self awareness, um, it ended up sort of breaking the mold uh, a little yeah. bit. By
1: putting on display all of the various tropes that are so yes. predominant in, within this genre that Clover identified, Scream effectively kind of forced you to have to change. It it forced it to change a little bit. And so, that, yeah, I think that's a good place. to. So it's like from Halloween to Scream, that's when Clover's talking about. So, yeah, of course, it wouldn't necessarily include Black Christmas, and Black Christmas might seem an outlier in the slasher genre, because it is. It's an outlier in... Lovers' sense of the slasher genre from that period.
0: Well, so I I think the reason that I want to hesitate to call it the, the like, start of the slasher film... So I want to say that it is... I want to make a distinction between something being the first and being the start of. Um, And I want to say that Black Christmas was probably the first slasher film, but that it is not the start of the slasher film, because... I don't think the slasher film as a genre talking again from Halloween to probably right before scream. Um, so including things like, you know, I know what you did last summer, that sort of stuff. Um, I, I think that that those films would have been the richer if black Christmas had been the start of that subgenre, but because it wasn't, we found ourselves with a entertaining, but ultimately, um, much less robust set of films than we might've gotten if we had all sort of worked from the premise that black Christmas was the, the beginning of the mold, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. I I think that that's, yeah, that's probably true because I think that the specific set of films that Clover is really referring to are all inherently conservative in nature. Yes. Um, and if and Black Christmas couldn't, uh, obviously, I mean it wasn't super duper popular. Was nowhere near as successful as Halloween or films like Halloween, in terms of just like its monetary return. And I think a, a large deal of that had to ha, has to be attributed to the more risque elements and the more, I, I mean like taboo subject matters that it plays with. That audiences would be if not in disagreement, at least uncomfortable with. Yes.
0: And there there are two things that I think. So I think it's it's the taboo element, um, which we've been talking about. And also, I think it's the fact that the film um, is surprisingly disaffirmative. In a, and mm-hmm. I say surprisingly because um, I'm not sure I can think of any other horror slasher film that is... From that period, right? That is, um, disaffirmative. So, on the taboo end of things, it's not just, um, it's not just the issue with Jess uh, and Peter. It's not just the fact that she murders an an innocent person, which, again, not many other slasher, uh, final girls do. Although, Um, is he innocent? I don't know if that's true. Well, so he's, (laughs) okay, innocent of, of murdering people in the house. (laughs) That is... Uh, he is he is innocent of murdering the people in the house. However, you're right. He is not innocent insofar as um, nobody who participates uh, in in the patriarchy is innocent.
1: And I mean, I think ironically also to like the more libertarian conservative people who might have been offend who might be offended by the, the implications of something like that. Ironically. American law would have Jess be in the right because he is also violating property laws and by breaking and entering. And so American law puts it well within her right to kill someone, uh, based on breaking and entering principles. So ironically, both, I think from, if you are a, on the more progressive, uh, end of the spectrum, the more left-wing side, you are obviously, you would agree, you might be able to agree that, uh, she's in the right because of his transgressions against her and her femininity and his role in the patriarchy. And if you're on the more right-wing side, she's in the right because of property laws, which I just think is very funny. That's that hysterical. That both of those are there.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely hysterical. I hadn't even thought about it, but you're absolutely correct. Um, that the only way it could have gotten a little bit more, you know, um, America was was if she, you know, shot him with her, like, Colt rifle. Um, or, yeah. you know, like... So, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um so we have those levels of taboo we also have you know there's a, I, again I was rather surprised um by by the amount of of sexual uh language that they got into this film um both the whole like running joke about uh you know fellatio uh but also mm-hmm. I actually was profoundly disturbed by the the killer's phone calls Um, Some of the sounds that he made were absolutely terrifying um, because they felt very unnatural. Um, I think once he started talking and like having, you know, mumbling about, you know, uh, things it became a little less scary. But there were a couple of those early ones when he was saying just a whole bunch of um, words about female body parts um, that that he made some, like, squealing-like noises that were I mm-hmm. truly just utterly terrifying. So we have that so element do you of wanna the tavern. know? Do you want to know
1: how that was all recorded? Yes, I do. Um, so it was by the mixing of forks, combs, knives into the strings of pianos to create a kind of warped sound, and then the distortion of the sound further by recording it onto an audio tape and then slowing it down, and then... The recording of the voices during a lot of those things would one of the main actors who recorded the voice stood on his head during the recording sessions to compress his thorax and make his voice sound more demented. He spent three days recording dialogue for that character and described this experience as being very avant-garde with the director encouraging him to improvise within the
0: character's voice. That's amazing. I... (laughs) I am just always so amazed by the creative, the creativity of of sound mixers and sound designers, um, and yeah. also just the like, you know, screw it, let's just see what happens. Right approach um, of some some lower budget films. Uh, yeah. That's fantastic. So,
1: so that was like the forks, knives, and combs combo was also used to make the score as well. That was Excellent. mixed with the piano music that accompanied that as well so it was just like very interesting sound design all over the place in this film
0: yeah and and interesting sound design coupled with some really lovely um cinematography um mm-hmm. and you know the acting was pretty nice i i do want to talk about though i think the other reason that this film to me was such a pleasant surprise is that as we've talked about many times in our on our episodes um i i truly think that that typically speaking the more interesting horror is is disaffirmative right and Mm -hmm. and when we lift up the curtain we realize that we are the problem and i think the that idea is continued beyond peter so there there is a little bit of the dialogue of the killer that suggests that he has trauma from like a mother figure that that is a little problematic um Problematic
1: but, or just Freudian? Well... Just weirdly Freudian. Yeah, so
0: problematic in that it's weirdly Freudian, right? Like, <laughs> that's um, what I thought
1: you meant. I yeah. just wanted you to no, say that. No, uh,
0: thank you. Problematic <laughs> in that it's grossly Freudian. Um, but one of the things that's really interesting to me is the the role of the police officers in this film. Uh, and and it's interesting because, again, like I think everything this film does, it refuses to give us quite as clear, clean answers um, of, you know, is just, um, you know, the, the quote, Madonna figure or the horror figure. And it's like, does it matter? And and then it's, you know, are the police saviors or, um, you know, incompetent? And it's like, well, it depends. Um, and so, you know, we have some really incompetent police. Um, but then we also have, um, the, the main police officer who the actor would later go on to be in Nightmare, um...
1: Uh, John Saxton?
0: Yes, John Saxton, I uh, would later go on to be in, in Nightmare on Elm Street and would become another problematically patriarchal police officer figure. Um, but... Also
1: a dad in that movie. Yeah,
0: yeah, like literally a dad instead of just a figurative dad. Um, and, and on the one hand... He seems to be competent. He seems to be investigating things. On the other hand, he's not helpful at all, right? He, he. like in Halloween, this also happens in Halloween, right? The the, the patriarchal figure arrives after the final girl has taken care of, quote, everything. But mm-hmm. unlike Halloween, we realize that, like, they're leaving her in the house with the killer. Yeah. And that's that's where we end our film, right? With the realization... That, uh, that our system that has promised to protect us um, is, is incompetent on a really fundamental life-threatening level. And again, I, that's a really disaffirmative message that, that is kind of shocking for, for horror, period, but especially for a, um, a film that is predominantly about white people and a film that is um, a slasher film.
1: Yeah, it does. It has a it says a lot about just like the complacency um and the inability of uh people in power, poli- law enforcement men to help those who aren't in the dominant paradigm, who don't represent people who fit that exact description of white men. It's a I mean, it's yeah, it's you're absolutely right. It's it's very Deeply progressive in its messaging and very incredibly disaffirmative, very, very against the current status quo. I I don't know. I think it's just very, you're right, it's very shocking that this is still a film from 1974. These are conversations that we are having today. These are like things that are still being talked about today. I mean, I think from, yeah, both the characterization of the police um, and its relation to how it helps marginalized groups. Um, and then also the Peter as being this kind of more, I, it, it's, it relates to a concept that's been going around on the internet, uh, as of late of these like soft boys, um, and yet how they can still be incredibly toxic because these, the Peter kind of does take on some more feminine, um, attributes. He is a patron of the arts who... Is going to play music, which is a more feminine, uh, typically gendered as a feminine trait. He wears feminine style of clothing. He wants a family and to settle down, which are and have the and have these children, which are typically gendered as being female things. And yet, he is still a symbol symbol of the patriarchy. His femininity and his perceived fem, his rather his perceived femininity. Is not enough to negate the fact that he still has a lot of privilege and power, and abuses that power that he gets from the patriarchy.
0: And I would argue that maybe one area where the film not not falls, but maybe stumbles slightly is is in the idea that his it is in the ways in which he is more quote feminine um, that that cause us to be alarmed by him. Right, so it's when he becomes more emotional. Um, it's when he becomes needy. It's when he refuses to, um, you know, to back down on on and listen to anything. Listen to reason, right? Yeah. Um, that that he becomes perceived as as the threat, and and it's in those moments that the film is asking us to question whether or not he's the killer, right? Because, of course, we don't know for sure if he's the killer throughout most of the film. It doesn't make sense timeline-wise, but, you know, we, we're willing to suspend our disbelief. And so it is a little problematic that that what makes him dangerous, right, or what makes him a perceivable threat is the fact that he's not acting like the, the quote, good qualities of, of masculinity, right? That he's acting, quote, feminine. Um, and I don't know, you know, I don't know what the film could have done to resolve that. Certainly it would have taken another about 15 or 20 minutes of of plot. Uh, but But that is maybe the one place that the film stumbles a little.
1: Yeah, which is interesting. It's an interesting, I don't even know if I would necessarily describe it as an outright stumble, just more of a, kind of interesting commentary on the perce- on like what we perceive as being gendered and it's like the it's weird that those things would then be associated with bad so maybe it's like a call to like for to the audience so maybe you should re-examine why you read femininity on this character as bad
0: yeah i don't i don't know if the film has the ability to quite make us question that i don't think it quite goes that far um, I think it it would need something more in order for us to do that. So maybe um, an exploration where we realize where we have to like really question whether Jess was in the right to kill him. Um, whereas I don't think the film makes us feel at all bad that he's he's died. So mm. and and like you said, the film sets very clearly makes it known that he is the killer, right? Or not killer? That he is the. He's not the killer. I'm sorry. The film makes it really clear that he is the villain. Um, and so. I'm not sure that it quite does what it would need to do to turn this into an ask on us, the audience, to consider it. Certainly not the audience of 74. Maybe the audience of today. Um, But I I just think that that's yet another really fascinating layer to this film that makes it just surprisingly worth, worth engaging with.
1: I mean, I think whether or not it's necessarily what they specifically intended... It's certainly a way to read the film. And one that, I don't know if necessarily, as you're you're framing it as like a problem, I don't know if it necessarily rectifies this problem, Um, but it certainly adds an interesting layer of the discussion that can be had.
0: One of the things we haven't talked about, but that I know both of us very much enjoyed, uh, is the fact that this is definitely not a a horror comedy in the same way that some other horror comedies are that we've talked about. Right? This is not like a la Shaun of the Dead, where it's comedy with some horror. But this is a funny film, um, or it, so that it's almost it's it's like it's it's a horror dark comedy, right? If if if
1: a horror black comedy. Ha, ha,
0: ha. Yes, I, I mean, and it really is, and I think. You know, there's a lot of, of very amusing parts that that happen throughout. What what were some of the ones that that struck you as being worth sort of thinking about further?
1: I think a lot of it. What I find just absolutely fascinating is a lot of the humor that's been able to come out of the setting and the particular. I mean, the setting of the sorority house and a lot of the humor that is that stems from these characters. And I think it's not always necessarily even, like, behavior that you typically would associate with people who are in a sorority. Like, I think Barb is an absolutely, deeply h- hilarious and fascinating character, and it's not necessarily someone who you typically would think of when, when the stereotype of, like, a sorority girl comes to mind. And I think that's another thing that is very excellent about this film is all of the characters in the sorority house and people who interact with the members from the sorority house are forced to, like, kind of come to terms with the, the, the fact that, yeah, maybe these stereotypes and everything you know isn't exactly true. And so this comedy that comes from that is often from, like, a mishmash of, like, people's perceptions with the actual performance of people who are in these situations. Um, and I just find that... And I think it's also not only the people who have to, have to interact with the characters who are... In the sorority, but also the audience and their perception of people who are in sororities, and the just mishmash of what actually happens in the film versus what the expectation is.
0: I think you can see a lot of um, what will end up becoming source material, and I'm not saying that this that this was a source of inspiration, but I think there's a lot of um, ways in which the humor in this film. We will see eventually in National Lampoon's 1978 Animal House, which mm. is all about you know fraternities and it's all about some of the like raunchiness of it and the like quirky, oddball characters and the fact that like we all have this idea that you know fraternities and sororities are producing sort of carbon copy individuals and yet what makes them so, so such a weird place is that they are often filled with people that are so diverse, right. But are somehow linked together in this house. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and so there's little moments like when the house mother, uh, you know, realizes that there's some obscene um, items around the house. Right. And is like trying to casually cover them up while she's talking to the dad, um, the first girl who disappears. Um, I also think that the, the Christmas element, uh, you know, this was a good, this film did a good job of, of making it so that it was relevant and, and, that it's at Christmas time, like it fit into the story without it feeling um forced. So one of the thing, one of the jokes that I thought it was it was a really small moment, but when the children are like doing the Christmas carols and then one of the supervisors comes up and she's like, Um, we need to leave now <laughs> you know and they're like, Why? Um, you know, it's so just like all these little things of like, you know, in a time when all of us sort of willingly suspend our our belief in like stranger danger and you know needing to be accountable and like not you know boozing it up like you know Christmas is a it's a lawless time right like it is a it is a true like period of carnival as defined by um Bakhtin and and this film reveals that in really clever and funny ways In case you are sad that our episode is about to end, there is no need to be, because we are going to keep giving you Black Christmas uh, for the next little while. So our next episode is going to be on... Uh, The 2006 adaptation
1: of Black Christmas. This is one you've seen, I've not seen, so it'll be the first time for for me to watch it. Uh, But it'll be interesting to hear about... How the film has evolved in your mind since you saw it?
0: Well, considering that I don't remember it at all, (laughs) (laughs) the answer is significantly. Um, No, I just, I don't remember this film at all. I know I've seen it because I know I've seen one of the Black Christmases and I haven't seen the 2019 or the 74 prior to this. So by default, but that is the extent of my my recalling. So I too am very excited to see what my (laughs) thoughts are after watching this film. Uh, in the meantime...
1: Yeah, be sure to uh, give us a like and share us. Uh, be sure to follow us on social media. And as always, if you want to get, just recommend us to your friends, we'd always love to have new listeners here. And you feel you can feel free to reach out to us if you have any suggestions for a future episodes. Let us know what you like uh, and what you want to see more of in the future. As always, thank you for listening.